Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Kelly. Welcome to what is going to be the last of the current series of the Marathon Bet podcast with myself and Simon Jordan. Hi, Simon. Hi, Danny. Great um, to be here as always. Absolutely. And we've had a belting series called The Seven Deadly Sins because we're doing 10 podcasts. The first seven were the traditional deadly sins, the biblical, the old school deadly sins. Then Simon and I picked a deadly sin each for the last two weeks. And this week on social media, we asked you to pick the sin that you think most affects the great game of football. There were hundreds and hundreds of entries and lots and lots of very amusing ideas of what the ultimate sin is. But actually, the most requested one was the one we're going to do, and several of the other ones could be rolled up to it as well. It is a game awash with money, personality, fame, and all the rest of it. But one sin pervades it from top to bottom, from east to west. And this week on the Marathon Bet podcast, Simon and I will be discussing the sin of stupidity. And I heard some stupidity only recently with only gone on Solskjaer's reaction to Man United conceding a goal at Liverpool, which is his players are tired. Some of Liverpool's players tired. They had the same resolve for something different. Why are their players any less tired than your players? They've been making most of the game. I don't think that they're fully committed as human beings to VAR. To getting VAR working because of reasons of protecting yeah. their own pitch and wanting to make sure that they control yes, the I way believe. the game goes in their direction. Only a really stupid person would buy yeah, a car Absolutely, club. yeah, yeah absolutely. Really thank you, Dan. Yeah. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Yes. Know no anyone like that? So, Simon, stupidity. We could have saved probably three shows for this. Given we could the, indeed. Given what I suspect. We've we done both. a whole series, then. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to doing stupid yeah. football and stupid footballers. I mean, I want to talk to you a lot about the way the game is organised. Yep. And without getting too heavy as well, it is some very stupid stuff goes on there. But I, I'm going to start with a controversial question because it keeps on coming up. Are footballers stupid, Simon? Yes and no. I think from an academic point of view, the myth that footballers can't think for themselves, don't have the intelligence, are all monosyllabic, has long since dispelled. You know, the idea when David Beckham first came on the scene that people used to ridicule him and the manner in which he spoke and the, the stereotypical image of a footballer being a little bit Luddite and, and thick in their approach, I don't think is relevant anymore. I think most kids that come through academies and youth development, the clubs have a great responsibility to ensure that their scholastic approaches and achievements are maintained. Where I do think they're stupid is the lack of awareness who they deal with in terms of what agents they choose and the manner in which agents operate with them. I think they're stupid about some of their behaviour outside of the game, not realising their responsibilities, because with great opportunity and with great wealth comes great responsibility, not only to the game and not only to the people that watch it, but also to themselves because they do get involved with great big acts of self-harm. And when you look at acts like the Derby players, then you steer into the narrative, uh, are these kids or young men Stupid. Let me ask you this, Simon, about the responsibility that the clubs have, because you know the big clubs have these academies. When I was at school, it's a long time ago, there yep. were two kids in my school who were really good at football. One went on to be an Arsenal reserve, and people thought they were going to make the game. They were allowed to come to school in tracksuits and flip-flops, mm -hmm. and in a school that was obsessed with education, suddenly they were out of the system. They just wanted, yep. They were just allowed to be footballers. And we used to drag the best young kids out of our schools at about 15 years yep. of age, as soon as we could. How seriously do the clubs take? Because, look, there are some very stupid, very educated seriously. people and there's some very educated, stupid people. Absolutely. But how important is education now well, other than just kicking a football well, you about? Well, we both know, Danny, academia is an ability to regurgitate. Intelligence isn't gained or garnered by being able to repeat other people's information. But to give you some real substance behind that ideal... Clubs themselves are benchmarked by the funding that they get within the confines of their academies about the scholastic achievements of the people that are within their academies, the scholars, when they get to their 16 years of age. The GCSE results that are published for kids are reported through the academy system. So you are also, as an academy, 
judged by what scholastically your kids are doing academically. So it isn't just the case of at 15 years of age, whoa, there's a big kid. He's really talented. He's at Crystal Palace's Academy. That's him out of the education system. Yeah. They are obligated to give them study centres. They are obligated to give them educational support. And they are judged by the performance that these kids are actually doing scholastically. And I have no scientific evidence for this, but I think that's a great thing. Discipline. Even for the footballers. And for the individual kids, of course it is. But... For years and years and years and years, one of the things I always said about German football was in Germany, you weren't allowed to leave school until yep. you were 18, even if you were in, a, in an academy, right? Yep. So you had people making their debuts for Bayern Munich and Dortmund who were still at school studying. Mm-hmm. It would never happen in this country. Or it did never happen. And that was one of the reasons why I thought German footballers were so good at picking up tactics and sorting things out for themselves yep. when the pitchman went wrong. And I wonder if what you're telling me is one of the reasons why our age group footballers are improving now as well. We're at the point where we're turning out more brilliant players than any other country in the world. Maybe, but I also think that the game of football has become far more cosmopolitan for obvious reasons. It's reached in all strands of society. So footballers being able to be dump skis and not be able to communicate is beginning to become a thing of the past. You know, we had at Crystal Palace a 15-year-old in John Bostock Mm -hmm. that made his debut in a high-profile game against Watford. And he was still at school, still doing his GCSEs. I think Wayne Routledge was doing the same. I think Nathaniel Klein was doing the same. I think Victor Moses was doing the same. So it's not something that's alien to it and getting paid £275 a week on a scholarship contract. And Victor's probably on 150 grand a week now. So the plans of what was laid down for them. But I think it's right and responsible because I think every part of a sensible football club knows that young boys coming through their care, through their tutelage, and it is part and parcel of safeguarding, is that education becomes part of it because you know and I know that a large proportion of these boys are not going to become professional footballers. So the support structure that's put in place, which is where football isn't stupid, is to ensure that there is a little bit of a safety net for these boys that go in there with the dreams of being the next Beckham, Kane, whoever you want to name as somebody that you want to be inspired by, do get some support in life so they don't come out of it going, they will come out of it bitterly disappointed, but they don't come out of it without one single qualification to their name, unless they choose to, and then that's something you can't necessarily legislate yeah, and for. And you're right to say that a lot of qualifications are about regurgitation, but at least if you're doing education, and I speak as someone who... Trains your absolute, brain. It trains you to think. It, it will train trains your brain. To think. My history teacher, bless him, the reason I'm here is for him, he just said, I'm going to now do two years of you doing A-level history. He said, yeah. at the end of it, you won't know much history, but you will know how to think. Train your brain. And that was absolutely, absolutely critical. Right. All right, I just wanted to establish that, because I hate that. I think it's a great deal of class business in saying, you know, footballers are stupid. There are stupid footballers, there are stupid everybody, Totally, there? and there's lazy journalism, and there's yep. people that want to portray footballers because they are envious and covetous of what they've got. And we now live in a situation, Dan, where these guys are not just independently wealthy. These guys are millionaires. Ronaldo is close to being a billionaire. Everything hangs off them. So the ability to be able to represent themselves, even down to the lowest common denominator, being able to communicate in a slightly articulate fashion is going to add value to the footballer's career. As we go through the years, and we'll talk about next how the game is financed, talk about the very elite players now. There are probably more players now than could buy football clubs. You can always talk about, they'll be rich enough to buy a club soon. You take the super clubs out, Cristiano Ronaldo can probably afford to buy most of the clubs in the Premier League. But here's where they won't be stupid. Yeah. They won't be stupid enough to do that. Only a really stupid person would buy yeah, a club. Absolutely, club. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really Thank, you, Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Yeah. Yes.
Which no, takes no anyone like that? No, no, I didn't. I don't actually. If the seeds then are the young footballers, and then we're talking about their stupidity, yep. the stupid things they get up to, comically often, of course. Sure. Young people. And also tragically and stupidly and irresponsibly. So there is a whole raft of ways that they behave. You can go to the Newcastle players in the Grosvenor House Hotel when I lived there and that awful expression of roasting and orgies and so on and so forth. That's stupid behaviour. You can look at the Derby players. Or you can look at Paul Gascoigne riding around on a bus picking people up on Leicester Square yeah. and saying, that's stupid, but it's funny. At the other end of the scale, you've got people of your pay grade who look after the game, even above your pay grade. Yep. And to me, the financing of football, the basic financing of it is daft. I use the word daft instead of stupid. And here's the reason. We talk about revenue. I, as a fan, they get me at the turn. I'm quite a difficult person to turn upside down. They turn me upside down, shake you by the heels. Any spare cash you've got, they need all of that, right? Television deals, no matter how damaging to the fans' interest and you end up going to a match 200 miles away at 8 o'clock in the evening on a boxing day, what is all this money being used for, Simon? Because it seems to me, staring at it, that for every lovely new stadium they build, most of it is leaving the game entirely in players' wages. Football, could it have, if it wasn't so stupid, half as much revenue, pay the players 100 grand instead of 200 grand and still carry on quite happily? Well... There's a famous statement made by Alan Sugar many years ago when the Premier League was conceived and he turned around and said, why did we tell everybody what we were getting? Why didn't we tell them we were getting half of what we were getting so that then they'd take all of that half rather than all of that 100% that we spoke about? It's because football sometimes is very immature and thinks about the importance of its own achievements and doesn't look pragmatically or strategically about the nature of the way the game is going, players' wages, agents. And ultimately, whatever way you look at it, Dan, because of the competitivity, there will always be... I remember stupidly trying to do a deal for Dean Ashton. You know Dean, right? Yeah, right? Dino, yeah. And we were signing him at Crystal Palace in the 2005 transfer window. Right? Dean was at Crewe, and there were two other clubs at once, and one of them was Norwich, I believe. We were all in a relegation battle. So I said to the two other clubs... Why don't we agree a price? Yeah. Rather than cut our own throats, why don't we agree a price so Norwich can't leverage us, right? Yeah. The player can then pick the club he wants to come to, sure. and then you do your deal. Stupidly, I thought that was a commercial way to operate. Norwich, Norwich decided to break free of that situation and pay a million and a half more for the player, which of course then took the player off to Norwich what City. What did you feel after that? I felt stupid because I thought it was naive on my part because probably we would have done well with was that, that player. It was Roger Mumby, who was our chairman, but it was the delightful Delia that had her fingerprints over it at some point because she was the beneficiary of that additional money that went towards her cake mix. But, you know, I do... Have I you do boycotted f- her cookbooks no, ever not, since? I, do you know what? She's one of the few people that I actually, whose boardrooms I did frequent, not just yeah. because of the cooking, but yeah. because that's a lovely club and the people within yeah, she, it were she's, fair she's and too. equitable and decent and a lot of football clubs aren't. Yeah. But to go to the idea of how I thought... And we've discussed this in other environments. I just thought that the transfer market couldn't continue to grow to the levels that it was going to at the same time as wages. But because of the enormous wealth that's coming into the game, and while we say it's stupid, and it is an industry that is stupid, Dan, because if you've got governance, which is the financial fair play, I'm sure listeners know this, but financial fair play is the protocol put in place to be able to make football clubs sustainable. It's overriding, overarching principle is how much money you are allowed to lose before you get sanctioned. And the sanction will be financial. So I've never heard anything so absurd. No other industry in the world is stupid enough to say governance is about how much money you can lose so that you can prove the fact that you can lose money. 
But you've now got a Premier League, which on the whole is making about five or six to seven hundred million across 20 clubs. The average profit for a club is about 30. Your lot made 138.9 last year, which is a world record. Well done, everybody. Which they'll be all handing back soon if they're going to try yeah. and hold this squad or keep hold of Pochettino or whatever. It'll end up going out in wages. That's what happens. And that's the inevitability. But it's about managing the ratio. Right. Help me with this then. Why hasn't it gone? And again, a different country, different culture. Why hasn't it gone like American football when the wages became enormous? Yeah. The owners all agreed to do away with any kind of transfer fees at all and would say, you know, they, they, they do swaps. They Okay, let me ask you the question, Dan, yeah. because you're more afraid with that. Yeah. Isn't that more to do with the draft system and the nature of the competitivity in the leagues where, A, there's no jeopardy about getting relegated and, B, ultimately there is this propensity to want the bottom team to be closer to the opportunity to succeed in the following season, whereas ours, our pyramid and our systems are vastly different. Isn't that an underriding perspective? Yes, I think, I think the... The two things that drive American football to be the way it is are, one, they need it to be absolutely competitive. The television companies are not going to yep. pay what is still the biggest television one-off franchise payment if they don't think that the Carolina Panthers have got a chance of doing yeah. something. And secondly, the owners, and it is not questioned, have it that they need to make about 30% profit absolutely. on their massive investments yep. year by year or over a period of five years. Some yep. years you're going to lose some money. But they got together. and Because what you've got with the MLS, because I had a team, Palace were in America, and I saw that, with the NFL, with the NBA, is a group of franchise owners that get together and say, the first thing we do as owners is we make money. That's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is we distribute the money into the talent to be able to make sure that we've competitive and the broadcast revenues just continue to pour in. But it starts with a premise. Football didn't start that way. No, it's I beginning to come that way because what you're doing is you're getting the cook, the baker, the candlestick maker and the big guy in the town that comes in there because he wants to be recognised and revered out of the business. And you're getting nation states that are coming in there yeah. saying, well, bankroll to a point. But ultimately, even Roman Abramovich now is saying economics of a football club need to stand on their own volition. My marketing spend is over. And now it's time for Chelsea Football Club, not just because they've stupidly got themselves banned from buying no, out by players. that's a one-off stupidity. That's yeah. a different kind of stupidity. Yeah. right? So I do think that the element of thinking behind the NFL, the NBA, the MLS, and all these American models are, are steeped in the American way. But I also think with the football world, because of wages... The need for transfer fees has become even more prevalent because this money stays in the system and that, goes around the system. Yeah. It becomes less stupid. Where it becomes really stupid is when you allow Riola and Mendes to rock in and take 25, 30% of transfer fees out of the game. But it, the transfer fees, I totally agree that just for the stupid of listening, very few of our listeners are stupid. But the transfer fees, of course, that just circulates around the game. Sure. But there is something about it, isn't there? And that is, you've got a player. Let's say you, you've got player Dave Bloggs, and I come yeah. to buy him, and you tell me Dave Bloggs is worth 40 million. I need 40 million for Dave yeah. Bloggs. His agent will immediately turn around and say to you, but all the other 40 million pound players are earning X. Sure. We're on X minus 50%. And that is the conundrum. That is the never ending conundrum. It's like Danny. How the hell did we get into a world where you buy a player, an agent rocks into a room and says, I want £100,000 a week, guaranteed. I want a sign-on fee. He's a striker, so I want a goal bonus for the very thing that he's been brought to sign for. I want appearance money because, of course, the £100,000 a week doesn't qualify as him turning up for work. It's just a gimme. I also want a loyalty bonus. He's staying for four years, but I want a loyalty bonus every year. How did the industry get allowed to be like this? Because people weren't joining up the dots. Sometimes you can only join the dots working backwards, as Steve Jobs said. But in this instance, 
come on, conventional wisdom must turn around and say, your hand, and that's where my battles came, Danny. I used to sit there like some ridiculous, superannuated King Canute saying to everybody, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm not playing this, I hate agents, they're all evil, divisive scum, and I won't deal with them. So off they went, and off went some of my chances to sign players that might have helped me in the bigger picture. I wonder if what's happening at Chelsea is an eye-opener for owners everywhere, where admittedly by an act of stupidity, oh, Corruption. They've got themselves banned from a year oh, of buying in. Of, yeah, I think it's stupidity too. Of buying in new players, and suddenly they are bereft of uh, the ones that have left, the hazards, etc. Yeah. And they brought through. Admittedly, it's a great academy, Chelsea Sh- Academy. So it should be. Brought, yeah, they spend a lot of money on it. But they, right. Here comes their youth players. I'm asking you: Are Chelsea a better or worse team than last year? And the answer definitely is no worse. I often think, unless you're talking about a Lionel Messi, a Cristiano Ronaldo, and then I'm really struggling after that. Where's the next one of those? Mm. Even Gareth Bale, who for years was the third best player in the world, turns out to be largely expendable. You can replace these people. Why are we building them up to the point where we, as you say, we have to give them exactly what they want? That's stupid because Mm. I don't think that player X is 100% better than player Y. Because people are ostensibly lazy. Danny, back in the day, you used to sign players. People used to send you a videotape of a certain player, the XYZ, where I had one, Arian Back, I remember him, from Polonia Walsall that Steve Bruce wanted to sign. And they send you a videotape. Well, no one's going to send you a bloody bloody bad videotape, are you? And scouts used to come back and say, well, you know, we've watched this player for one game, we've seen the free videotapes, we recommend that you buy them. But also, in the question that you're posing, it is easier to be able to keep what you've got I think football is basically a very lazy industry that very much takes the path of least resistance. And that path of least resistance tends to be how much resistance will I get out of the owner every time I want something from him and how much pressure can I put him under to get what I want. And I think a lot of the thinking behind the industry, it's become significantly better. Sam Allardyce was, I think, one of the major changes of technology and bringing into the game. And he was branded as stupid because ultimately the old lags in the game don't like change. When you get to the pyramid now and you look at Guardiola, you look at Klopp, you look at your boy Mm -hmm. at Tottenham, Pochettino. I know he's going for a difficult period right now. It happens. They're bringing more joined up thinking into some of the stupidity that football does allow to perpetuate. And I heard some stupidity only recently with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's reaction to Man United conceding a goal at Liverpool, which is his players are tired. <laughs> so are Liverpool's players tired? They had the same resolve for something different. Why are their players any less tired than your players? They've been making most of the game. I think under pressure, managers, that's one of my favourite things they say that they expect us to swallow that yeah. are so transparently stupid under pressure. And broadcasters asking the most stupid questions. Get a 17-year-old well, kid in front of a TV camera right. and well, expect him to say something meaningful. Well, that's <laughs> right, because that'll take me on to another subject I want to discuss with you. And you have been involved with some because you've even had lawyers involved with some of them. We in the media, and I include this podcast, moan and groan like we've just been doing about the way football is, football people, football administrators, football managers, etc. I think the media is tedious beyond human endurance and I include my own work in this to some extent. I try to break out of it. The example I always give is the press conferences, the weekly press conference. Newspapers, editors, we know the editor of the most important back pages we work with him. I have my producers in radio and television shows. They can't wait for the Thursday and Friday press conferences to come. They are the most inane, repetitive. vacuous, repetitive, yeah. unrevealing, yeah. stupid occasions. Yeah. 
on the planet. Why do we do them like that? Why don't we abandon them? You know why, Dan. I don't. Well, you do, because we have such a need for content and we have such a need to fill space and there's so many different environments to fill it in. And I do think when you sit and watch the television at times, the beauty that I have is having paid for my seat at a table, having spent 50 million quid of my money being involved in football, I can see... BS, and I can recognise it, and I can understand, and I've been in a dressing room, I've bought a player, I've sold a player, I've owned a football club, I've thrown people out of boardrooms, I've had fight with managers. So when I see something, I can recognise what it is. And I suspect that at certain times, certain journalists are all theory and no practice. And what I do like is when we spend time together, because of your outlook and your vantage point, you have a very forensic mind and you distill things down. You were talking about something that my response in a different format Mm. was moderately stupid because you believe that there's a theory going on around the referees at this moment in time. I don't think that they are fully committed as human beings to VAR. To getting VAR working because of reasons of protecting their own pitch and wanting to make sure that they control the way the game goes in their direction. But I do think that in press conferences with football journalists, they are tedious, they are repetitive, they are regurgitatory, they're not insightful. The answers that come back are stock answers. And if you dare get any further involved in it, it gets closed down anyway. So it's almost like an exercise of futility. That's a tragedy because, look, I know we're well past the days when newspapers used to be able to say to football clubs, hang on, you get 15 pages of free advertising at the back of our newspaper every day, you owe us. That relationship was broken down. But, I mean, I watched a press conference this morning where Pep Guardiola, who answers always the first question, turns his face side on to the camera as if I'm not in the room, and he lets a, a really deep sigh. His answer to every question was, I answered this question before. Yeah. He's literally being asked over and over. And a perfectly respectable journalist, whose voice I recognised, asked him the question. Guardiola said, I've answered this question before. So he asked him again. Yeah. There's a barrier. And I don't know whether it's stupidity. I don't know what the football people think, that what great secret they're going to let out. Again, I look to North America, where coaches are expected to explain themselves. And I admire that. And when we hear someone like Chris Wilder from Sheffield United, come out and say what you and I consider to be the bleeding obvious. which Basic is, common sense. I'm not really going to applaud my players for applying themselves, you know. And everyone goes, oh, my God. He's like the bringer of truth and justice, Absolutely. Isn't he? It's like Moses coming the, down from the mountain. the seven seas, parting <laughs> the sea, absolutely. And you look at that and you think to yourself, that should be the norm. But stupidly, I think football journalists have alienated certain factions of football. I'll give you an example where I think that journalists have been stupid. Put... Pep Guardiola on the spot about the financial fair play issues of Man City. This is a football manager, not a finance director, nothing to do with not him. a chairman. What you do then is you alienate that manager. He doesn't trust your line of questioning. So when you've got something meaningful to ask him about the business of football, not the business of finance around football, you're going to get stock answers. Now, you know, we can sit here and pontificate about what it takes to be a sports journalist and sure. write for a newspaper or a sports editor. Sure. But I look at those things and when I dealt with the media, rather than sitting on the side of the fence that I do now, I had a deep-seated distrust because I thought the motivations were always as a lot of things in this country are, is to bring people down. Rather than bring the bottom up, they want to bring the top down. Yeah, they don't have to very far to go with those press conferences. And I, for one, I'll probably get sacked for saying this off the radio station, but I, for one, would abandon them right now. The moment when stupidity, and we'll get back to the crowds, we've given the media, yeah. we're, we're an equal opportunity employer here on the uh, Marathon Bet podcast, everybody gets their licks, don't they? It's interesting, isn't it, that you have to be very careful, because when 
players, young players, get out of line and do something even remotely daft. I don't know, James Madison going out to a casino, which he's perfectly entitled yeah, to do on, on the day it, of yeah. the England team. Even the Derby players, and what they did was both against the law, horribly reprehensible, and yet I know that in 20 years' time, we look back on these behaviours and we laugh because we now yeah. lionise the George Bests, the Frank Worthington, the Paul Gascoigne's, each generation of football who behave in any way erratically or stupidly, yeah. except when we... we flamboyantly, you know, flamboyantly. Yeah, we, we, they become legends yeah, for yeah. that. Urban myths. How do we balance that out? Because you don't want what happened to the Derby players. It was disgusting. Yeah, I don't think we can square that circle. I don't think we can balance it out. I think there is a characteristic in English football now that has changed. I don't think you'll find football fans going into pubs. When George Best was sitting in the Feeney Arms on the King's Road, people would want to go in there and buy him a drink yeah. when he was playing, when he was at Fulham at the time. When you've got footballers now, I think there's a propensity for fans to be a little bit more aggressive about what you're doing in a pub. We're paying your wages sort of mentality. And equally, the footballers are going to a different class of establishment possibly, where they've built a wall possibly, around themselves. Possibly, but you yeah. are still seeing that interaction. You'll see, it wasn't so long ago we are seeing Ross Barkley pick himself off the floor after someone clonked him in the face because he didn't take, you know... Stephen Gerrard, Aaron Lennon, yeah. Yeah, and we go on and we go on, don't we? But unfortunately, it is a byproduct of the game and a byproduct of the society that we're in. But by the same token, I don't think you can change that, Danny. I don't think that, whether it's stupid or not, people looking at deeds and redirecting them, recreating a narrative around them, some of what we're watching and some of the examples that you've given have a great deal of tragedy and tragicness about them and looking back on them, I can't see how anyone can lionise what the Derby players have done. No, perhaps that was a very bad example. They were blinking lucky to get away with a prison sentence. You know, absolutely. And you look at behaviour and I think society has changed in its vantage point towards the footballers. I think there's a lot more envy now towards mm-hmm. footballers from certain people. And it's like nouveau riche, you know, even though footballers now are great wealth creators and that wealth will be spread around car garages and houses and God knows what else and jewellery firms, which all employ people and all other people get the benefit of it. There is a great deal of what I believe is... And tattooists, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And man bag manufacturers and whatever else. (laughs) And the the sellers of Beats headphones. Exactly. And I think that kind of culture that footballers exhibit sometimes with the tattooing and, you know, this lemon mentality does steer towards the stupid. But I don't know if I agree with you, Dan. And on the subject of lionising. I think people become myths and Gascoigne, a lot of stories about Paul Gascoigne. I can remember you know, people that played with Paul, that played for me at Crystal Palace, telling me stories about how Paul would turn up drunk for playing at Middlesbrough, put his fingers down his throat, throw up and go out and play on a pitch. Do you know what? I stand to be back down here because the world has changed. We now recognise that Paul Merson, Paul Gascoigne, yeah. George Best who yeah. we were all lionising, yeah. they've all got the same problem. They've yeah. got a disease, got a disease, an addiction. Tony Adams, he's cured himself, of course. Sure. Um, so perhaps we better be very careful. I mean, I'm being very careful because we've discovered something. I mean, I, I grew up in an all-Irish community in North London. Lots of people drank a lot. It was, you know, it's a cliche. Ireland has the highest level of teetotalism in Europe, but it definitely balances, balances it out with the way the, way the way male population, yeah, yeah. in particularly immigrant population. I now realise half these people were mentally ill. They were self-medicated. They were lonely away from the country they'd come from. They were overworked. They lived in a society which didn't value them. Half these people were self-medicating. Mm. So, sorry, this has really gone to quite a serious I place. Know. This, this, this <laughs> On the podcast. couch with Dr. Danny. <laughs> yeah, listen, don't worry about that. We're, so I'm going to go, we'll take it wherever it wants to go. 
Other than um, Delia Smith, have you ever been duped by somebody pretending to be stupid but actually was rather clever? Or have you ever been duped by somebody who you thought was clever but turned out to be blinking stupid? And you're not allowed to mention Ian Dowie. No, of course. <laughs> I mean, I would prefer to say that when I walked into football, what I saw was a very badly constructed and rather stupid set of thinking that, that orchestrated some of the challenges that people like me were to overcome. I can remember, Danny, the idea that football had. We had a player called Craig Foster who was an Australian international that Terry Venables had somehow signed from Portsmouth. When I think when he was originally coming from Portsmouth, he was coming for 200,000 or 500,000 pounds. When Terry got involved, all of a sudden the fee had gone up to 750,000 pounds and and the wages had gone from 10,000 to whatever. Anyway, that's uh-huh. a different story. But I bought Palace, this player wasn't even present. And you had to get certain requirements from international clearance to be able to give them a work permit, which meant they could continue with their contracts. And this player didn't turn up to the work permit hearing, wasn't really interested in getting anything besides his money. So I said, right, well, he hasn't got a work permit. He's not getting paid. I was summoned to a football tribunal, which the Football League and the PFA represented the player. And what they wanted me to do was to defy the law of the land, which is Anyone without a work permit cannot work in this country. Sure. And football wanted me to pay this guy a million pounds for not turning up for work, not being able to have a contract and not being able to have a work permit. And it's only because I wasn't stupid enough to accept that prima facie, as a lot of people do when they walk into football, that I managed to not have to pay that million quid, but I had to go to great extremes. Now, whether that's stupidity, whether it's arrogance, whether it's hypocrisy, whether it's vested interest, whether it's a football mafia ganging up against some young Billy Wiz, as Dave Bassett once described me when uh-huh. I walked through the door at Palace, or whether it's a rotten industry that has stupidity at its core, there's something really wrong with that sort of thinking. That's not unique to that instance. There are many, many instances of when football creates a culture that has nothing but stupidity at its centre. Well, at a much lower level, and this will give you a chance to think about these sort of things as well while I'm telling this story. Again, it involves Terry Venables. When Terry, at the real height of his powers, around the time he's managing England and Tottenham, Crystal yeah. Palace, if you like, um, he really was a larger-than-life figure and huge in the industry and huge in the media in this country because, of course, he was brilliant at giving quotes and things. Quite but his own life, chappy, wasn't he? he's, yeah, yeah, his own life was quite complicated, I think it's fair to say. He had a whole lot of minor business dealings that he was dealing with all the time. All failing, by the way. Well, you know about this, yeah. Scribes. I mean, we'll come on to that. People tell me, for instance, that, you know, he would do one of these question and answer evenings where you pay to go and see Terry Venom. He's already been paid to do another job. And at the end of it, he would run to the back of the hall and he had invented a board game and he would sell the board game off a table. He wrote a TV series, didn't he, called Hazel as well, didn't he? He, he wrote the first the books. Yeah. I think they were called... Uh, did he write a series of novels called... They used to play on grass. Right. He predicted the 3DG pitches, actually very clever. And yes, he co-wrote Hazel, yeah. the detective series. He could do all sorts of things. But I remember a story that came in the papers once where a pub in Essex, one of those disco pubs in Essex, yeah. the guy who stood there, three lorries pile up outside his pub. Excuse me, we'll take him away. It's one of those light-up dance floors when you put your foot on it and the weight, it lights yeah. up so you Michael can do Jackson Billy Jean thing, yeah, and all yeah, that, yeah. beat it, whatever. And they took away his dance floor. They dismantled it and took it away. He, of course, gets hold of the authorities and says, somebody just come and stole my dance floor. Turned out it was Terry Venables. And he was installing the floor at his club in Kensington. Was it called Scribes, Scribes West? Yeah. Yeah. Scribes, yeah. With John White, I think, was his finance director at Spurs, who was also Terry later completely apologised and reinstated the floor. In the he thought he owned that pub. Mm. He got himself into such a web of financial dealings, he genuinely thought he owned that boozer. Yeah. That's an example, I think, again, from a bygone age, where the mixture of fame... And football's ability to tell you you can do whatever you like. Absolutely, Dan. You, I mean, who in God's name would take on J.P. McManus and Magnia over a horse? I'll tell you somebody. 
Ferguson because he sat there in a football world where he's insulated and protected and believes that stupidly that you can do what you want because the football world says that you can. And when you come out in the real world, every now and again... Two some, massive players in the Someone come world. along and give you a smack. Ian Dowie thought he could lie to me. I had to get it in. Yeah. Got convicted for fraud because I took him into the real world. And it happens every now and again and you see it and there's nothing that I can enjoy more with a great big plastic grin on my face when I see somebody inside the football industry that thinks they can do as they want, that something of theirs doesn't smell, and then they get taken into the real world and smacked about a bit. And I do have to say, I do quite like it. If I had to say to you... There's the football world, or planet football, as you always like to yep. call it. Over here is the real world, planet business, planet yep. humanity. How long did it go? So you bought the club 20... I bought it 19 years ago. I bought right. it in so 2000. Let's, let's call it yeah. 20 years for the sake of argument. Yep. Is planet football nearer or further away from planet real life these days? Genuinely, I think it's becoming closer. I think that the scale of money that's going into the game makes it become more distant, but I think the actual expectation and obligations upon football and the understanding of what football should be doing and what could be doing and how profits are part of the business, it's becoming closer. Don't get me wrong, it's still a country mile away from where it Mm. needs to be. There's still a whole raft of scenarios where football has a ready-made set of absolute drivel, crap excuses for the reasons why it shouldn't be accountable. You'll have the people like Gordon Taylor rocking out of the world, turning around and saying, well, Riyad Mahrez is entitled to strike because he wants to go to a different club. Okay, that's great, Gordon. Really, he shouldn't be striking. He's getting paid £100,000 a week to pay at Leicester. Really, he should just get on with his job. Then you look at the stupidity of the football world giving a union, which has 2,500 members. Less now. You know, less now. £27 million a year so they can put Monet or Lowry paintings on their walls. Does it know no bounds? But unfortunately, with stupidity, often with great greed comes an element of great stupidity and arrogance that think people can get away with certain things. I'm loath to say this, but fans are stupid too, aren't they? I saw some film the other day of Manchester United fans waiting for the team bus because the Man United now meet at a hotel and then make their way. The gap between the door of the coach... And the entrance to the players' tunnel, which, of course, I've got another story about, at Old Trafford, is about six feet. And hundreds of people wait there to watch people getting off a coach, wearing Dray headphones... Engage with and them, not a jot, yeah. three steps yeah. into another dark corridor. Are we nuts? It's a ritual, isn't it? I mean, it's a routine with fans, and there's an element of stupidity and sometimes just self-harm thinking about what they do and don't do when they schlep up and down the country and get themselves involved in situations. But there's also... I'm going to go off a slightly on a different yeah. tangent and not talk about fans, but I look at the serious matter. I know a lot of this show seems to be more serious than and you and I are quite light-hearted, but sometimes you've got to hit football subjects quite hard. No, quite. But the situation in Bulgaria last week, hmm. besides the disgraceful antics of these morons inside the stadium, I think the stupidity of the Bulgarian FA, the stupidity of UEFA that aren't able to get in front of these situations and manage them properly and ensure that we don't give a narrative to newspapers to dial it in and to feed what they want to do, which is feed stories into newspapers. If we haven't got enough stories with Brexit, then we'll now feel it with something else. Because it's not that the newspapers aren't writing these stories for anyone's benefit besides content, and they're filling it with content. In this situation, the Bulgarian authorities... The Bulgarian FA and the head of their FA was very robust about his point of view, very robust about the antics of Bulgarian fans compared to the antics of British fans. And in rock, 100 or 200 or 50 or 60 ultras and no 
preparation for stopping these people in the tracks. And I just think that's bordering upon criminal stupidity because it, what it does is it starts to bring a beautiful thing into disrepute, oh, which no, is no, international no, no, football. No, no, that's the racism thing. Racism has to be dealt with. It is a scourge in our society. The cost mustn't be to destroy football just because that's the way a few lunatics have decided to express themselves yeah, by using, turning up a football Using grounds. football. Using yeah. football as an opportunity to express their views. Absolutely. And it's not like the Bulgarian FA weren't warned. People talked about the bit of the ground that was closed. Yeah. Actually, there were two parts of the ground closed for two different previous totally. offences. So when you talk about stupidity, I always think, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, you know, shame on you, and stupidity pervades. And ultimately, if you keep making the same mistakes, if you've got two sections of the stadium closed for the very thing you've got to have a very rare gift of an inordinate innate amount of stupidity to be out front and center criticizing the team that you're playing against for their racial issues in this country and then allowing that to happen on your watch and not being in a position to go boom that stops immediately and i just find that beyond stupid i find it as i said a moment ago almost criminally stupid I guess we should end by asking if there's any danger that uh, any of these issues, the big ones we started with talking about financing of the game, the ongoing issues of racism, it's easy to point out, and we've done a lot of it in this series, it's easy to point out things are wrong with the game. I'm an optimist by nature. I believe in the goodness of human beings. That is tested sometimes. Sure. That's what I believe. So I'd like to end this series of the Marathon Bet podcast by getting your views on the future of football, whether there will be a triumph of sport over politics, whether there will be a triumph of common sense over stupidity, whether there will even be a triumph of straightforward thinking over the distorted thinking that money creates. What's your view of the next five to ten years of the game, Simon? Do you think it will hand it down to the next generations, the wonderful thing that's obsessed me in my lifetime, that's caused you to spend 50 million of your own money? Will we get to that place? Yeah, I think so. I think it's maturing as an industry. I think it still has a lot of journeys to go on. I think that there is still an inherent lack of professionalism within the confines of the game, even to the thorny subject of VAR. We all knew this was going to be challenging. We all know that there was going to be a lot of naysayers and dissent and the stupid thinking doesn't provide solutions. I don't think there's enough joined up thinking in football to say, how does something break? When I used to have other businesses, I and marketing campaigns would say were part of it, I would look at a marketing campaign and say, how does it break? And if I can't break it, then it's a marketing campaign fit for purpose, right? So I've got to find a way. I know it's like an age-old expression of take care of your downside because your upside takes care of itself, right? How do I break VAR? How does it become? How does it bring the game into disrepute? Referees won't make the right decisions. They won't allow Stockley Park to give them better advice. They want to adhere to a ridiculous instruction of being able to give out an outcome within 28 seconds and won't go to the pitch side monitor. How do we disenfranchise the fans or disillusion the fans, sorry? We won't communicate with them, right? So let's do that then. And I sit there with that sort of thinking and think, unless we get really joined up thinking in the sport, the money side of things will always become part of commerce. It's always part of industry. Life is like a a poo sandwich. The more bread you make, the less poo you eat, right? I'm using a politically Mm -hmm. correct word. You know what I really really wanted to say there, right? And ultimately, it greases the wheels and it changes the thinking and it brings the best of class into football because previously, what you've had, and I had it in previous incarnations, chief executives in football that weren't good enough, weren't able to run other businesses but operated within football because some silly other bugger was going to give them a checkbook and let them run on their money. And I think as football starts to polarise towards more maturity... 
then it will become more sophisticated. What we're going to hand down to the next generation, well, I think that the football's been homogenised. I think it's been sanitised. I don't like what we're going to hand down because I don't think we have any contact in the sport anymore. I think we've got a lot of prima dollars. I think money dictates a little bit too much. But we are handing down an offensive brand of football. And I don't mean offensive in terms of offending people. No, no. I mean an attacking brand yeah. of football that doesn't replicate what you and I grew up with in the 70s where a nil-nil draw was Triumph. a regular occurrence. Yeah, and watching two teams kick lumps out of each other was public entertainment. And to some extent, I did like that. So you know, did I, yeah. But the hypocrisy of the sport is beginning to be shown. You're beginning to see, and we're critical of journalists, we got a journalist that did something with us the other day, Matt Launton, that took our breath away with the scale and depth of his understanding. And you're getting journalists now, even though I'm really critical of them, that understand the machinations of sport far better, which means the public game, because it belongs to the public to some extent, get shown how it really works. And all this mythology, all this crap that I waded through in my time where you can't go in the dressing room, the dressing room is in a sanctum, agents are this, managers have to have one caps, you can't do this, chairman I never wanted to be heard from. All that claptrap has been dispelled because it was stupid in the first place. I feel very sorry for you in that, all of that. I, mean, I know I like taking the mickey out of the losses you made, and this will be the last thing I say on this <laughs> series, but if you'd had social media and you could have spoken directly to the Palace fans above the heads of journalists, administrators, and the people at the club even who were working against you, I think you've had a much better chance. And that's something that has happened as well. Sliding doors. But there you are. Wrong place, wrong time, as far as that goes. But right place, right time for the last 10 weeks. I've had an absolute blast been great, doing these it? podcasts with yeah, you. Thank great. you very much indeed. Those of you who've been listening to us clearly are the least stupid people in society, and thank you for listening to our exposition of football's 10 deadly sins. Based on overrounds versus all bookmakers on home, draw, away, pre-match markets on oddchecker.com, which bookmaker was the best-priced 34 out of 38 weeks in the Premier League last season? Marathon Bet. That's right. Before you bet, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best-priced. Join today at marathonbet.co.uk because better odds mean bigger winnings. For more info, visit marathonbet.co.uk slash landing slash oddschecker. Marathon Bet operates in Great Britain under the Gambling Commission Licence. 18 plus begambleaware.org excludes Northern Ireland. Regular listeners to the Marathon Bet podcast will want to know how Simon and I got on with our charity bet over the past 10 editions of the programme show, podcast, download, whatever you want to call it, the great people at Marathon Bet have given us the opportunity with the simplest task, just pick the result of three football matches and they will give us a certain amount of money for charity. Now I'm not going to, I could pretend that at the last minute we've really come good and got all the results right, we haven't. So in the result we've not managed in any one of the ten weeks to get the three results right. Which is why, Simon... Maybe um, your thought might. Yeah, which is why we, we shouldn't set ourselves up, leave that to the experts. However, the good people at Marathon Bet have been so good, they've taken the stake money, which is a not insignificant amount of money, and asked us if we would like to donate it, since they have no further use for it, to a charity of our choice. I'm going to choose the same charities I chose for the first series of the Marathon Bet podcast with you, Simon, and that's the St. Joseph's Hospice in Hackney. There's an awful lot of charities about coming into this world, children's charities and all the rest, quite rightly so, and rather less so that deal with the uh, still taboo subject of how we depart this mortal coil. I have a friend, she works there, and to see how they care for people who are on their last last legs of their journey, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I don't think I could do it and they need money to press on, and so I'm going to give it there. Who you've chosen? Danny, great minds think alike. 
I have chosen a very similar course, uh-huh. and I've chosen a particular hospice called Dove House Hospice in London that do exactly the same thing as you suggested and need all the support they can be given. So I'm very pleased and very grateful to Marathon Bet that they're prepared to give a donation to these people because it's a very deserving course. Thank you very much indeed, and particularly, of course, there. Thank you to Marathon Bet. Which takes us, Simon, to a very pleasant thing we have to do is we choose two people to go into our Marathon Bet podcast sin bin. Each week we've chosen two people who have been the most high-profile committers of the sins we've been discussing. And this week it's stupidity. Who do you want to put in the sin bin? I'm going to go towards the, the very dark subject of the racist issues that happened in Bulgaria yeah. and the Bulgarian England International. I'm going to defer to giving the person's name because you're a brilliant presenter yeah. and you'll be able to pronounce <laughs> it properly. But it's the head of the Bulgarian FA who went on the front foot and deflected from the challenges that his country has with the issues that we're talking about repeatedly, you know, racism rearing its head and ugly football, attacked the English mentality, yet couldn't control or even have the foresight for a football stadium that's been closed for two different instances and only has half of the seating available to provide the prerequisite amount of security. The and his name is? The man you're talking about is Borislav Mihailov. In he goes. Uh, and I'm going to entertain you some more here, Simon. Look up for your phone just for one second. He, of course, has tremendous previous of stupidity. Does he? He was the goalkeeper in the great Bulgarian team that reached the semi-final of the World Cup in 1994. You know, Stoichkov, Lechkov, Trifon, Ivanov and all those. He played in that World Cup wearing a full toupee. And in one of the games, the heat got so bad, the glue melted and it slipped sideways off his head. He's the same man who signed uh, a year later. So he's a world star. A year later, he signed for Reading in the championship. When asked why he did this, he said he'd been watching the television match with them on television and he thought they played at Wembley. In fact, he was watching them losing the playoff match at Wembley. He thought they played at Wembley. So he had some previous in this, Mr Mihailov. And of course, he's now been dumped, hasn't he? My person going in the sin bin for stupidity this week is Brendan Rogers. I say that very rarely. He's a very clever fella. But the public admission that he'd given Jamie Vardy a couple of days off training this week to deal with the fact that Vardy's wife was having a Twitter <laughs> spat gossip, with yeah. Colleen Rooney. I mean, the two of them, they may even have made all that stuff up in order to promote and get more followers so they could sell more scents and nightdresses to ladies on social media. Chaps too, if you're interested in that sort of thing. But for Rogers to give Vardy two days off because he had some issues at home over that. No, Brendan. Pathetic, isn't it? Say this. Pretend he's got an ankle injury or something. Don't say that. That's just stupid. You're in the sim bin, my friend. One more thing before we go. One more swing. One more thing. We have picked a number of people each week to go into the sim bin for committing the actual sins that we've been discussing week by week by week. I think it will be entertaining and indeed our duty, Simon, as human beings and as the most judgmental show on anywhere on the internet, to pick one each from the candidates we have from our sin bin for the the ultimate sin. Let me go first, let me go first. Yeah, go on, because I know you're dying to. Go on, then. (laughs) I'm going to go with my favourite person that I love to take a swing at repeatedly. He was put in for greed. Right. And I don't think anything's changed. And given the spirit of the last show, Stupidity. stupidity. I think that his stupidity is of such a significant nature, whether it's stupidly greedy or he's got a stupidly greedy agent or he's just stupid full stop and his arrogance ensues that he should be getting a new contract when he hasn't done anything for the previous one. I'm going to bring Paul Pogba back front and centre and make him my standout sinner. Thank you very much indeed. You know what? The person I'm going to choose is committing a similar kind of sin but without so much profile and without doing it so publicly. 
I'm really sorry to do this because he's been a fantastic player for Tottenham Hotspur over the past five years. But Christian Eriksen, he was in our sin bin for envy because he clearly envies the careers of players who are at Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, while himself is at a fantastic club and in a really good team, not the last few weeks notwithstanding, and was in the Champions League final less than two months ago. And Christian, it seems to me, his form has fallen away so badly that he's let this thing get to him. And he's in danger of actually talking himself out of a move to Real Madrid because his former Tottenham is so poor. It's an easy tightrope to fall off of here, Christian. And I'm hoping that I'm making you my ultimate sinner that sometime in the next few weeks in that white shirt at Spurs, preferably the Champions League, you're going to go back to being the player you were before you were consumed by that kind of envy. And that really is it. We've got nobody else to poke a stick at, nobody else to judge. Damn it. N- nobody else to take a swing at, to use Simon's phrase. We just once again say thank you very much to Marathon Bet for the opportunity of doing this over the last 10 weeks. Thank you to Simon for responding to all of my most pleasure, Dan. Uh, Always probing pleasure. questions. Pleasure. To the people through the glass who've actually made the programme and to Dan Taus, who has yeah. ruined the programme week by week with his terrible view on betting and all the rest of it. And the team he supports. And, of course, wanging on about Brighton and Hove Albion. It's been an absolute blast. I hope we all join us again very, very soon and new people as well when Series 3 comes back very, very soon. Bless you all. Marathon Bet. Better odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus. Begambleaware.org.